Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 20. Please follow along as I read. It says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, comes knowledge of sin. I want to preach to you this morning on this text. On this question, do good people need to be saved? Do good people need to be saved? Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this text. We thank you for your word. I pray, God, that as I speak, that you would help me to communicate your truths, not merely my own ideas, that you would open our hearts, that we might be formed and shaped by your word this morning, and that we might know that salvation is available to all who call upon the name of the Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Do good people need to be saved? Back in the 90s, we used to say, you think you're all that and a bag of chips. If you still use that phrase, that means you're 35 years and older. I think we got it from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I actually looked it up, 1993, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You think you're all that in a bag of chips. This morning I want to preach on this, this question, do good people need to get saved? And I, I, and I believe that God is saying to us through these verses that you are not all that. You're not even a bag of chips. You're not even a bag of Dorito chips. And then somebody says, well, I'm a little bit good. You're not even a bag of Funyuns. <laughs> Look at verse 9 in the text. Verse 9, he, he asks this question, what then? What then? In verses 1 through 8, which we studied last week, Paul was exploring the question of whether or not Jews have an advantage growing up Jewish. And he answers that, with, yes, they do, in that they have the Bible. They grew up with the Bible. 
But the problem, though, is that some Jews of Paul's day believed that because they had the law of God, they had his word, they had his scriptures, that just simply having the Bible was sufficient because they would do some good things. That because they were good, they were good to go without any real need for, an, for, for a Savior. And so what Paul is basically saying is, is yes, there, there is an advantage to growing up good or in a religious home or Jewish in that you have the Bible. But, but the advantage is not justification by works of the law. Now that might have just passed some of us. What he's saying is, is you are not made right before God by doing good things that God requires of us. This is mind-blowing for many religious people today. And it was mind-blowing for the, for the Jews of Paul's day. So I want to preach this morning to the good people in the room. Some, some people think they're good. If you, if you believe that you are really bad, you know that you're bad, I've got something for you as well. Kevin. Mike. But for those that believe you're good, I'm, I'm sort of leaning in your direction today. Because I think that's the way Paul is leaning as he's final, uh, finishing out this, this indictment against all people everywhere. Bad people and good people, Gentiles and Jews, all in need of God's grace. So good people in the room, are you better off than the bad people in society? This is how Paul continues, look at how verse 9 goes on. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Meaning, is there some kind of additional protection that we have that would somehow guard us against the wrath of God? Do good people, because of your morality, have some kind of additional protection that would guard you against the wrath of God? Are you better than others? The world operates on sort of this good people, bad people paradigm. The world assumes that there are good people and there are bad people. Before I planted this church years ago, I remember walking through another Baltimore neighborhood and uh, was just trying to get to know the city at that time. And I'd asked somebody that I, uh, in the neighborhood I was walking through, I said, would, do you think this would be a good spot for a new church? And his, his response to me was this. He says, if you really want to help people, go to those people over there. Those people over there. Meaning we, I, whoever the we or the I is in his mind, are essentially good. And religion or salvation or grace, that's for those people over there. So who are good people? Well, good people, quote unquote, good people, good people. would read about the enemies of God throughout the Bible. They would think of enemies in their own life, and they would never actually ask themselves, am I an enemy? 
You know good people sort of preaching when all of the preaching is about how you need to cut off toxic people in your own life, but there's never a question that's asked, am I toxic? Am I in need of salvation? Am I, am I in need of grace? You see, quote-unquote, good people, when they read verses like Psalm 14.3, all have turned away, together they have become worthless. When they read those kind of verses, they think, oh man, I'm so glad I'm not like one of these enemies of God who have turned away. And they never ask themselves, have I turned away? Good people, quote-unquote, when they're listening to some preaching, they say amen, not because I need to hear it, but because the bad people over there need to hear it. Amen? Yeah. See, nobody said amen. <laughs> Look, now I feel like I'm, I'm afraid that I'm at the quietest church this morning. Give me your amens amen. and your hallelujahs. Those people over there. Do good people have some kind of special protection? I've got two points for my sermon this morning. We're going to keep it simple. The first point is this. Do good people need to get saved? Yes. Why? Number one, because you're not actually good. And my second point is this. Your standard of goodness is wrong. So let's break this down. First, you are not actually good. Verse 9 continues. What then? Are Jews better off? He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, now this is Paul's uh, title, nickname for all people everywhere, the global worldwide population, all people, Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, he says, none is righteous. No, not one. Why, why is Paul emphasizing this? Is Paul just being negative? You, you know, the most important thing that we need to know is that we are not actually good. Paul's not being negative. He's leading us step by step to the cross of Calvary. Imagine a doctor comes to you and says, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pump your body full of alkylating agents, anti-metabolites, certain enzymes, and these are going to together create a certain kind of reaction. It's called chemotherapy. And you say, why? What, what are you putting into my body? For what purpose? You see, the problem is that he hasn't yet told you that there are tumors growing in your body. Now, for any one of us who have had loved ones with cancer, what you know is that it's the tumor that's growing in our loved one's body that's making them sick that leads us to agree with the treatment. Are you with me? Meaning, unless a person knows that they need treatment, they will never listen to the message of treatment. So, Paul, as he's rounding out 
Romans chapter 1 through 3, which is this worldwide indictment. All people everywhere need the grace of God. They are all sin sick, leading us to the treatment. He rounds it out with Scripture. When you look at these, these verses, verse, uh, uh, verse 11 through verse 18, Paul now is just stringing together Scripture. Let's look at it. This is evidence for us that we are not good. Four pieces of evidence he gives. Piece number one. You know you're not good because sin contaminates everything. Everybody say everything. Look at verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Righteous. Righteous. What does that mean? Anybody? Right standing before God. Righteous means to be right with God. it's, It's to do what God requires, meaning the whole of your character, every thought, every action, every word is right. Now, somebody, a good person in the room might say, well, I'm not, I'm not fully righteous, but I'm mostly righteous. One of my favorite scenes in any movie is in the 1980 film Caddyshack with Chevy Chase. I doubt most of you are old enough to appreciate this movie. But the scene uh, which, which I will always remember is a pool scene where a Baby Ruth candy bar is accidentally dropped into a swimming pool. And this Baby Ruth candy bar starts floating across the swimming pool like a shark in water. Now, uh, picture what a Baby Ruth candy bar in a swimming pool looks like. As it is floating through the water, first a little girl sees it and she screams and then an old lady on the side sees it and she says, don't touch it. And then utter pandemonium just unleashes as everybody's scrambling to get out of the pool. The scene ends with, uh, uh, with men in, in hazmat suits draining out the entire pool, cleaning the pool. They find it, they discover that it's a baby Ruth. Candy bar. Here's my question. How much fecal matter does it take to contaminate a pool? You see what I'm saying? Like, why is it that we understand that? Why is it that we understand that you have either pure water or dirty water? You don't have mostly pure water. If I were to say, hey, here's a glass of water, and it came out of a big, beautiful pool of clear, sparkling water with one little piece of something floating in it. Is that pure water? Why is it that we understand that one drop of contamination contaminates a whole pool, but we can't understand that one drop of sin yeah, yeah. contaminates an entire life. Yeah. 
You're either pure or you're not. You're either clean or you're dirty. There is no mostly righteous. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves if we think we're good enough for God is do I have one bit of contamination in my system? He goes on to say, no one really knows or no one really understands God. Meaning, if you understood God, you would understand this. You would understand the righteousness of God and how pure He is and how one bit of sin would contaminate the whole bunch. He goes on to say, no one really seeks God. Meaning, if, if you don't know that you are contaminated, you won't cry out to God. Sin affects everything. Second bit of evidence that Paul gives is that sin affects their words. Sin affects their words. Look at verse 13 and 14. There, now there is referring to the Jews, which I'm using as a modern day understanding of people who think they are good. Are you with me? So good people, their, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive as Jeremiah 5.16 quotes. The venom of asps is under their lips. That's Psalm 140. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That's Psalm 10.7. Look at the language he uses here. Throat, tongues, lips, mouth. That's like the whole of our word-making machine. And he's saying the whole bit of it is corrupt. It's contaminated by sin. In what ways? Well, look, good people, people who think they are good, might still gossip about one of the bad people out there. And in their gossip, they are contaminating themselves. They are condemning themselves. Quote, good people might lash out with self-righteousness at one of the bad people out there who messes up. He goes on to say curses in verse 14. Well, someone might say, well, that's not me. I've never cursed. Well, have you? What is a curse? Let's think about it. Where, do, where is the first place we see a curse in the Bible? Anybody? Well, we got to be quick this morning. We don't have much time. And I don't have my clock here, so I'm just going to keep going until, until we're done. Genesis. Who gives the first curse? God does. Isn't that interesting? God puts a curse on humanity. And then God says, don't curse. What's he saying? He's saying, cursing belongs to me. And so what was popular in the Jewish day was that they would put curses on people. They would put curses on people and and, and condemn people. And we, we call curse words curse words because they are used in cursing and in wishing the worst, wishing harm on another person. Now think about it. A self-righteous individual may have never used a quote-unquote curse word, yet they have wished for the worst for their enemies. They have wished destruction upon those that bother them, that frustrate them. As a matter of fact, I remember walking some time ago through the neighborhood with another individual who uh, uh, the world would, would see as a good person, all right, according to worldly standards. 
and we were walking up the street and, and uh, saw the, uh, uh, the hustlers and uh, those that are coming to the hustlers, and this good person said of them, ugh, half-humans. Wait a second, was that not a curse? You see, even in our self-righteousness, we can have foul language. This, this indictment goes for all people. It, sin affects everything. It has affected our words, he says. There is no one good. No, not one. This also applies, I believe, to false teaching, which was also prevalent in Paul's day among the Jews. The Jews were teaching in Paul's day a form of Judaism that God did not recognize. One of the popular teachings of their day was this, and I quote, Thou, O Lord, God of the righteous, has not appointed repentance for the righteous. For Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who did not sin against thee. Well, that's interesting because that's not what the Bible says about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is it? But there is a form of teaching which essentially assumes that you are good. And that you don't really need to talk about sin and talk about repentance because you are at your core pretty marvelous. And he calls this the, 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 the venom of asps under their lips, meaning it is the kind of teaching that does not lead to life, but it leads to death, church. Their words are sweet, but they deceive you and they, they poison you with their truths. If we don't believe if we don't believe that we have sin, let me put it this way, if we don't believe that sin is our biggest problem, yeah. then we will misdiagnose our disease. Yeah. Meaning, if we believe that our biggest problem are toxic people out there, if we believe that our biggest problem are the people who don't believe in my dreams, if we believe that our biggest problem are the people that are holding me down, we will misdiagnose the problem. And you might hear somebody say, well, we're not sinners per se. We're just in transition. We're just going through something. We're just on a process of becoming better. If we misdiagnose the problem, we misdiagnose the disease. If we misdiagnose the disease, we misdiagnose the solution. Are you with me? meaning we won't preach Christ crucified. We might preach crucify your friends, but we'll never get to the Savior. No one is good. No, not one. Three more bits of evidence. I'm going to go through these quick. Sin affects their actions. It affects everything. It affects their words. Sin affects their actions. Look at verse 15. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. Proverbs 1, 16. Well, the righteous person comes, self-righteous person comes along and says, well, I've never murdered anybody. I'm not swift to shed blood. Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, doesn't he? That it's, 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 it's not the action of murder that is ultimately the issue. But it's what begins in the heart as hate 
meaning hate for your brother, is the same root sin as murder. As one person put it, uh, there are sins, he said, that I have committed with my mind that my hands have never got to. Sure, you may have never actually killed somebody, but there are sins that you've committed in your thoughts that you never got to with your hands. Fourth bit of evidence, sin affects their happiness. Verse 17, he says, the way of peace they have not known. He's asking you, are you really happy? Do you really have happiness? Like beyond circumstances. If your circumstances sour, are you still satisfied? Do you have true, deep-seated joy and happiness? He's saying they do not know peace. Fifth bit of evidence that there's nobody that's really good. He says sin affects their fear. Look at verse 17. He says there is no fear, or verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's quoting Psalm 36, verse 1. Meaning, since we don't understand that we need a Savior, we therefore have no fear of God. We believe that we are ultimately okay for God, and we take God's okayness with us for granted. James Montgomery Boyce, a pastor from Philadelphia back in the day, said that since we do not fear God, we then fear lesser entities. Meaning, in the ancient world, what did they fear? They feared the gods that they made up, the gods of Rome, the gods of Persia, the, the, the gods of Babylon. In the ancient world, they feared rocks and rivers and trees and skies and thunder and the dark of night. Today, what do people fear? People fear other people. People fear people that make them feel unsafe. People fear their neighbor. People fear the future. People fear disease. People fear nuclear weapons. People fear financial loss. People fear death. William Gurnall said, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, two talking animals, they're beavers, are trying to explain to two little girls who Aslan is. Now, Aslan is this Christ figure in the story. And they're trying to explain who Aslan is to the To Romans chapter 3. It'll be better the second time around. As I was saying, 
In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's, there's this uh, uh, scene in which two beavers are explaining to two girls about this, this lion named Aslan. And, and so the little girl learns that it's a lion that she's about to meet. And she says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I mean, a lion kind of makes me nervous. That you will, dearie, said Mr. Mrs. Beaver. And make no mistake, she continues. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without, no, without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Well, then, isn't he safe? Asks the little girl. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Look, when the good lion appears and you discover his strength, you, you, you see the strength in his jaw, you see the muscles flex as he walks, and you realize that this lion is on your side. A healthy, right fear of the lion. You don't want to cross the lion. You discover he's on your side. All of the lesser entities that we fear flee. We fear these smaller things. We fear things like people and jobs and money and death. Because we have not yet learned to fear God. But here's the question that I'm trying to get at today. How do you know that the lion is on your side? How do you know that when this lion appears, he will call you friend? How do you know that you are not an enemy of this lion? Well, that's where we're going. Stay with me because, see, this is our first problem as good people is we assume the lion is on our side because we've done so many good little things. When we read the Bible, we just assume that he's on our side because we are so cute and cuddly. Paul here, I've, I've mentioned to them, them to you as I went, in verses 13 through 18, Paul has mentioned uh, or quoted Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Jeremiah 5, 16, Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 10, verse 7, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 16, and Psalm 36, verse 1. Why do I mention that? It's because if you were to read each one of these passages, what you would discover is that he's pulling passages that, re, that, that are talking about the enemies of God. The people who actually are harming Israel, the people who are attacking the, the, the true people of God. So what Paul is doing is it's almost as if he's taking each one of these verses like weights and putting them onto a chain and then wrapping that chain around my shoulders and drawing me straight to the ground. This would have been offensive, terribly offensive to some of the Jews hearing this in his day. Or it would have been convicting. And that's the same for us. It would be offensive to us or it will be convicting to us. What he's showing us is that good people who think they're good are not actually good. 
meaning the world has got it wrong the whole time. You know, we think we, we, we are doing well morally. We're checking that box. We look good. We even smell good. But there is no one good. No, not one. There, we are not actually good. That's my first point. My second point is that good people are using the wrong standard. The reason we think we're good is we've got the wrong measuring stick. I googled in preparation for this, what is righteousness? I was just curious to see what I would find. Because that's what we're talking about here, righteousness. So I, I, I got on this website, gotquestions.org, which is a wonderful website, by the way, for, uh, for biblical material. And I read this paragraph on this website. I don't know who wrote it, but I loved the paragraph, and i got to read it to you. They said this, Dictionaries define righteousness as behavior that is morally justifiable or right. Such behavior is characterized by accepted standards of morality, justice, virtue, and uprightness. The, behavior, uh, the Bible standard of human righteousness, however, is God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, every word. Thus, God's laws, as given in the Bible, both describe his own character and constitute the plumb line by which he measures human righteousness. What he's saying is this, is if you're trying to determine whether or not you are righteous, according to the dictionary definition, you might pass the test. What is the world's standard of morality? There is some standard of justice. There is some standard of right. And if we look at the world and the world's standards, we might pass the test. We might be better than most. But what they're saying is that the Bible doesn't use the dictionary. The Bible looks to God to define righteousness. And according to the scriptures, righteousness is defined by God's every action, every attribute, every attitude, and every word, and it is absolutely pure. Look at verse 19 and 20 as we, as, as we round this, this passage out. He says, now we know that whatever the law, everybody say law, that, that, that's a reference here to the scriptures. I believe he's referring to the whole Old Testament, not merely the Mosaic law, but the whole of what God has revealed to us of his morality, who he is, his standard. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that, here's the purpose, every mouth may be stopped. And the good people are like, what? I thought God told me what to do so that I could do them, so that I could be justified, made right before God. And he's saying, look, when you receive God's law, it actually silences your lips. It silences the mouths of those who come with their own self-righteous defense. And he says that the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let me explain this by way of analogy. When I was in high school, I played an all-conference basketball game at, uh, in the Cleveland Cavaliers arena. And measuring against high school standards, I felt pretty good about myself for that game. 
I did pretty well. I was actually very happy with the way I played. And even though I'm only 6'1", I wasn't like the shortest guy on the floor. I was taller than a few. I remember this demoralizing moment as I was walking off the, the, the Cleveland Cavaliers court, walking into the, into the locker room, feeling really good about myself. And I bumped into a few Cleveland Cavaliers basketball players. And I remember looking up at seven foot three, Zadrunas Ilgauskas. And I realized in that moment, even as I watched them walk, that I had been measuring myself the entire time according to the wrong standard. Meaning the high school players that I had just been playing against was not the standard of basketball perfection. Are you with me? And now I'm standing up against, literally, a standard of athletic perfection. Now, as I'm preaching this morning, talking about how bad you all are, thank me afterward. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm trying to bring you to meet Zydrunas Ilgauskas. Uh, the, the, the standard. I want you to meet the standard of holiness. And his name is not actually Zydrunas Ilgauskas. It is Jesus Christ. He is our standard. Who are you measuring yourself up against when you think that you are good enough? Who is it? Is it your friends? Are you better than your friends? Are you better than your brothers and sisters and those you grew up with? Are you better than the community you came from? Like, what's the standard that you're using when you say, you know what, I'm actually pretty good? Maybe it's a standard that we've got in our own minds that we came up with. When we meet Jesus Christ, what we discover is that his character, his thoughts, his actions, his words were absolutely pure. Jesus Christ was from the beginning God who took on flesh and became a human. We call him the God-man, 100% God and 100% man. And Jesus Christ becomes the standard of perfection in his flesh. He never once sinned against God. He never had a thought of sin against God. He was 100% pure. Where do we find that pure water? We look to Christ. That's the standard of purity. That's the definition of righteousness. Are you with me? If you don't know that you need the treatment, you won't listen to the message of treatment. I guess what I've been trying to do this morning is to get you to know that you need the treatment. Now that you know you need the treatment, what is the message? In other words, how can we be sure that the lion is on our side? Here it is. Look at verse 20. Just one word. He uses the word justified. Everybody say justified. Justified, justified means to be declared right. As if a judge is trying your case, and he declares you to be innocent. That is justified. 
God is the perfect judge. He knows all about you. He remembers sins that you forgot about. He is the judge. Justified. How is it that we can be declared right before God? Well, it's not by works, verse 20. We've got to skip forward two verse, three verses, verse 23 and verse 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody say amen. That's what we've been covering. That's a nice summary statement. And look at this, are justified by his grace as a gift. What? Are you serious? It's that good? Like, I'm, I'm, hold up, I'm that bad. I've been measuring myself up according to the wrong standard my entire life. And I'm now condemned in my sins. And you're saying that he would declare me to be right as a gift of grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, what's that mean? Jesus lived the life of goodness that I should have lived. Jesus lived the good life that you should have lived. And on that Good Friday, Jesus hung in the place of those who believe that they are too good for salvation. He hung in the place of those who believe that they are too bad for salvation. You know, on that, on that Friday, he hung next to a criminal, the bad of society. Clearly bad. He knew he was bad. The reject. And that man was saved on that Friday. And there was another man. Scriptures tell us there was a Roman centurion. Listen, successful by every measure. A leader in the Roman military. Overseeing over a hundred soldiers, likely. Good by every worldly standard. And on that day, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. On the day of crucifixion, we see the bad and the good come to their knees before Christ and declare that he is God. Turn to Christ, church. If you are not a believer, you are not sure of your salvation this morning, find in Jesus Christ all of the goodness that you need. Find in him all of the provision that you need. As Jesus hung on the cross, he hung in the place of sinners. He took the judgment that your sin deserved. And for all who turn from their sins and trust in him, we're told that by grace as a gift, we are given his goodness. And when God looks at us, he judges us with the same level of righteousness that Jesus Christ has. And he says, you are mine. You are mine. Turn to Christ. Trust in him. And what happens? Number one, he declares you to actually be good. How do you get good? Trust in Christ. And God says, you are good. Because he is good. Not because you have intrinsic goodness in yourself. Yourself. 
but because he is good. And secondly, he proceeds to make you actually good. Meaning he gives you the Holy Spirit, his own spirit, which convicts you of sin. And over time, you actually become good. Not perfectly good. We're always saved by grace as a gift. But we actually start doing good things by his help through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me close with a story. A true story. There were two people that lived in a garden, and they lived with God. Their names were Adam and Eve. There was a tree at the center of the garden, and God said, you can eat of any tree in this garden, but do not eat of the, the tree at the center of the garden. Now, Satan, who the Bible says is looking to destroy us, appears to Adam and Eve in the form of a snake. And he comes to Eve, he comes to Eve, and he tempts her. What does he tempt her with? It's goodness. He says, do you want to really be good? Do you want to really be good, like God? He tempts her with the idea that she could be good without God. That God is actually keeping you from real, true Goodness. And so Eve then takes the fruit, as you know the story goes. She takes a bite and she gives some to her husband who was with her the entire time. You see, for some, the temptations that Satan brings into your life are to do really bad things. But for others, and I want to be clear, the temptation that Satan brings into your life is that you can be good without God. As a result of them eating, God then curses the ground. He curses the man. He curses the woman. Humans will now die and live underneath this curse. He curses the snake. But then in his curse, God gives a promise. He says that through the woman, through the womb of the woman, is going to come a baby. And that one day, in some way, that serpent is going to bruise the heel of the baby. But the baby is going to crush the head of the serpent. Are you with me? Let's fast forward. How did Jesus fight our fight? When Jesus entered the fight of redemption, when he entered into the fight to save us from the curse of sin and death, how did he do it? I don't know about you, but typically when I think of the winner of a fight, my son hadn't contestified to this, the knuckles of the winner are typically bruised. Not so with Jesus. When Jesus declared that the fight was finished, it wasn't his knuckles that were bruised, but it was his body that was bruised. When Jesus declared that the fight was finished, his body had been ripped to shreds. 
Nails were uh, pierced through his hands and through his feet. He had a, a crown of thorns that was crushed into his skull. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And his body was laid lifeless in the grave. But three days later, early on Sunday morning, the stone was rolled away and Jesus got up from the dead. And listen, when he got up, oh, he still had the marks in his hands. He still had the marks in his feet. He still had a hole in his side from where the spear had sunk into his flesh. The marks of our sin will forever, for all of eternity, be on the body of our Savior. For all of eternity, we will see a bruised Savior who died in our place as ruined sinners. But when He stood up, we looked and we saw that He had His foot on the head of the serpent. He dealt a mortal blow to the snake. Oh, is Jesus good, church? Is there anybody here who could testify to the fact that Jesus is good? Has He been good to you? Has He picked you up and turned you around and set your feet on solid ground? Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. And rising, He justified freely forever. And one day, He's coming. Oh, glorious day. Church, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His mercy endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Jesus is good. I pray, God, that we would walk out of here with our heads held high, knowing that we are counted as good in Christ, beaming with His righteousness. We thank You for the Gospel. We thank You that Jesus overcame the grave. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.